hey, this week and this week in teaching, I'm thinking about war. I'm thinking about how I'll teach it, how I'll explain it, and how I'll contextualize it within the integrated social studies. But outside of the integrated social studies, how can I portray the human suffering, the cost at home and abroad, and the damage that's done to infrastructure and to human minds? It's something I think a lot about. It's something that in academia you learn to avoid. You learn to avoid what's closest to you emotionally. And we'll come back to that later. It's important for me to lay down some presuppositions. I went to Afghanistan twice, in 2009 and 2012. In 2009, we were committed to stopping the flow of opium. And in 2012, we were committed to mentoring an Afghan police unit, pacifying an area and handing that area over to the Afghan police unit to enable the drawdown for Barack Obama's 2014 withdrawal plan. And so, I was in the British Army. I was not there out of service. I did not hear a call to serve when I left school at the age of 16 with no qualifications. Nor was I driven to service out of some perverse desire to get revenge for an attack. Nor was I driven to the military because I viewed it as an excellent chance to grow and develop as a human being. I was driven to the military, like everyone around me in the British Army, because I had no other options. I left school at 16 with two out of the 13 exams passed. To get any basic job in the United Kingdom, I required five of those 13 exams, grade A to C. So already at the age of 16, I was completely unemployable. But the United Kingdom provides for those that it sorts early out of the academic and into the blue collar. It provides apprenticeship programs where one can gain a trade and one can become a productive member of society, albeit in the lower classes. Because the United Kingdom is hell-bent on sorting people as young as possible, rich and poor, successful, unsuccessful, qualified and unqualified. And so, not gaining access to employment, understanding that my life was largely set towards failure, and also not being able to get access to any apprenticeship programs due to demand, I found myself bouncing between missteps. 
found myself marking time, stamping my feet in the same spot and not going anywhere. And I was driven to the recruiting office. Unlike the United States, military recruiters in the United Kingdom do not go to schools in a predatory way and steal the souls of young people. Rather, they just sit back and they wait because they know that the military is the employer of last resort in Britain. And so, if you find yourself searching for some way to disagree with me, to thank me for my service, or to congratulate me on any supposed protection of freedom, or any supposed acquisition of courage and strength, let me stop you there. I was a broken boy that ended up in a job that broke me. I ended up in that job because I had no other option. And so let's go back to my time in Afghanistan. What were the results of 2009? Nothing. Drug production is higher than ever. What were the results of my missions in 2012? Nothing. We did not pacify that area. We did not successfully hand it over to the Afghan police unit and the Taliban retook that area as soon as we left it in early 2013. So, looking back upon my experiences, trying to use them and trying to bring about concepts and themes and an overarching idea that I can present back to young people. I can do it one of two ways. I could do it academically. But many would argue that academia lives in the realm of abstraction. They intellectualize, they verbalize, they have policy discussions. There's discussions of the merits, the pros, the cons, but none of it centers on the fundamental reality of war, which lives within human beings. Here's the reality of war. People tried to kill me. I was put in positions where I tried to kill them. Men lost limbs, their bodies were ripped apart, and I was left to bear witness to that. Young children died. Women lost their husbands, they lost their children. Men lost their livelihoods and were driven into service of the insurgents to feed their family. The reality of war is not within my realm of verbalizing because when I do, I'm driven to anger, I'm driven to tears, I'm driven to want to slam my fist into the nearest object because that is what war is. It is not an abstraction that one can 
intellectually pursue. It is not a policy to be discussed. It is killing. It is the mass killing of men and women and children for little to no gain. And so when I think about that, and I think about how I will teach war, regardless of how society and culture would like me to view myself as a veteran, I see myself as entirely victimized by the whole process. I don't see heroes. I see broken men. I see myself as a broken man. And while I'm grateful that society would like me to feel like a strong hero, I don't agree. My mouth guard that I have to wear every night doesn't agree. My partner that is often left to bear witness to my nightmares would disagree. My inability to control my anger would disagree. There's a strange fetishizing of veterans in the United States, and that translates into education. And what happens is, because of that fetishization of the veteran, a cult of militarism seems to exist. And one thing that exists primarily in cults, regardless of their theme, is that dissent is not tolerated. So when I talk about victims, and I talk about heroes, I can tell you that soldiers can be victimized and exhibit heroism. The men that I went on patrol with, the men that I fought with, the men that bled with me and suffered with me and dealt with the collateral damage of war, they were heroes. I wasn't. They kept me going. They kept me afloat. But we were all victimized by our nation's drive to engage in a conflict with no precise aim. And so the human level of teaching war is often missed out because the cult of the veteran is dehumanizing two veterans. The human element of the war is the family that sat there stoically watching me and my platoon in combat. A moment that to this day I struggle to understand how one family from small children, wife, father can sit there as though it's the most normal day in the world to have 12 men kitted out, leathering another part of their village with rifle and machine gun. The human aspect is people that grow up in an area so consumed by war that when they drive down a highway and the Taliban and my platoon are engaging each other, 
they don't stop and wait. They keep driving because they live in war. They grew up in war. War is so normal to their lives. It just becomes a natural function of their lives. And I suspect that many of us living in the privileged world think these people are used to living in war. And I can tell you they're not. Scared children, screaming men, crying women. The cost to the civilian population is war. And so when we think about comfort level, when we think about how good young people feel when they come away from learning about war, World War II, Vietnam, and every war in between, the forgotten Korean War, a war which has not ended, the campaigns in Grenada, and the wars that occurred since 9-11. There doesn't appear to be a discomfort in those subjects. And I bring up this point of comfort because my partner goes to a school that is working very hard to give some of America's most privileged an intersectional view of the United States. And intersectionality can be very uncomfortable for teachers and students. And I don't think I'll find it easy to teach because it requires an honest and critical interrogation of the individual, the local, the state, the national and the global. It requires one to think about one's privileges and it requires one to think about how those privileges, when taken, cause harm and dehumanization to those that are denied privileges. And so, in this school, racism is being taught, and I suspect that it has been taught correctly. The history of race and racism is the history of the United States. It is the core of the United States. It is the undercurrent of every facet of institutional, political life in this nation. And so I think it's appropriate that when people learn about it, they're shocked, they're saddened, they might feel shame, guilt, that might come out as anger, but they're feeling emotions that are not positive. And so I suspect, while war and slavery are in no way, shape or form comparable, nor is there any hierarchy of any form of the incomparable evils in the world, I suspect that there is something going wrong if young people do not leave the classroom when they learn about war, feeling deeply distressed. Now, should one teach war with the aim to depress and to distress? Of course not. The aim of education is not to bring about 
radical demoralization. However, if individuals are learning about the wholesale slaughter, the dispossession of land, the displacement of life, the tens of millions of people that suffer unjustly because of broken foreign policy in the United States. The untold children that now live without whole bodies because of collateral damage. The untold quantity of civilians that have been killed by what we call the drone program. If we are not teaching war as an abhorrent stain on the fabric of humanity, if instead we are normalizing war, then I think as educators, we need to take a serious moment to reflect upon whether we're doing it academically or emotionally. Is it an abstraction or is it a material reality? Are you intellectualizing or are you humanizing? Is it a policy discussion or is it a view of lived experience? Are we debating the pros and cons or are we exploring lived experience? And so I'll end with questions because I don't know how I'll teach war and I don't know how people should teach war. What I do know is that people should not leave the classroom feeling good and excited because it's not. You're talking about people killing people. It is an emotional, destructive, unethical, immoral crime. And if you're put off by my emotions when I talk about this, go back to the reflection. Reflect upon what war does to people. War is not glorious. Learning to hunt human beings is not glorious. Dehumanizing entire populations to the point where they don't appear human is not glorious. The courage that exists, exists within the brotherhood of the soldiers that live and fight and die and suffer. The heroism likewise. No one outside of that is a stakeholder in that heroism and glory. And that heroism and glory can still be wrapped up in a foolish pursuit. Because the people that decide on which pursuits we engage in, which criminal acts of killing and violence we engage in, they don't put their toes on the battlefield. No, they're at the bottom of 16th Street. Pennsylvania Avenue. So, what perspective should take priority in war? And help me. How do I make sense of something I did but don't understand? How do I make sense of that to young people? Thank you, and have a wonderful rest of your day.